please be advised there is some bad language in this episode and some conversations that may be triggering for people. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. You're listening to High Performance and this is what's coming your way today. The meatball is the person that you see at the weigh-ins, feeds from the crowd, fights for the crowd, fights for the person, fights for the underdog, fights for everyone who's not got it easy and needs something to cheer for and needs some excitement and needs someone to know that they're fighting for them. When I'm in the cage, getting hit and outmaneuvered by a, a submission attempt or by a strike is nothing to the life that I've had to overcome and to beat. What people write about me, what people say about me, or what my opponent's doing, that's none of my business. I can't control that. As long as I do what I'm supposed to do, I will be the best me and the best Molly McCann beats anyone on any given day. If you look at me and Paddy Pimbley, we have the same people in our corner who have always been there. I have my coach sit me down and literally say, that's not good enough, is it, Molly? I went, are you messing with him? Are you joking? Like, I'm crying, like, I'm trying everything. He went, you know you know and I went home and I went, I went in my head I went I'll fucking show you so I went home and I fucking showed him I'm going to be bigger and better than this I'm not going to repeat this and I'm going to make a change I'm too fast I'm too strong I'm too fucking good I'm powerful beyond measure I'm successful beyond belief and anyone's life I touch I change So that is 32-year-old UFC star Molly McCann, otherwise known as Meatball Molly. And um, the conversation you're about to hear is one that I don't think that she's had on any other platform. She speaks incredibly vulnerably. And I think that it's so important to have someone who's an MMA fighter, someone who fights at the top level in the UFC, talking about being vulnerable. Because if people like Molly can be vulnerable... It allows everybody else to do the same. So you're going to hear Molly talk about her family and her upbringing. You're going to hear her talk about her mindset, where her optimism comes from. You're going to hear her be really honest about struggles with her sexuality and what it took for her to come out. This is really a conversation that reflects the person. You know, when Molly McCann walked in the room, there was an incredible energy. There was a real sort of like everyone got a hug and it was just immediately really relaxed and... I just think that she is such an open book um, and I'm really pleased that she's chosen high performance as the place to share the truth behind her life. Because as you know, this podcast is not about high success or high achievement. It's about high happiness. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to Molly McCann, UFC fighter, so she can be your teacher. Enjoy the episode. 
a million times over and it's quite hard not just to repeat the generic version but for me I feel like it's changed as I've got older I feel like when I was younger high performance would mean success by any means necessary and um, maybe even um, going against my boundaries and just probably being a little bit unhealthy but I feel as the more I've got older and the more success I've gained high performance for me means achieving success without going against what I stand for and without crossing a boundary of mine I feel like the older I've got, the more success I've got, there's a lot of mental health that comes into play and there's a lot of pressure and it's very hard. So I feel like if I stay true to myself, I'm able to get there now. So what do you stand for? What does Molly McCann stand for? Equality, passion, community and excellence. Performing and walking in a state of excellence always. And trying to make people smile. Well, let's go back to the beginning of this story because I think it's really important for people to understand how you got to this place now. I love the fact that the first thing you say is, you know, nothing's forever. You're constantly evolving, which is, as we all know on here, the epitome of a growth mindset. What was life like for a a young Molly McCann? I really feel like that's where I built all of my resilience and my adversity. And I feel like the beginning part of my life was the hardest part of my life. Growing up in the 90s, um, the recession was around. Everyone's family and friends and parents who I looked at was probably all struggling with addiction and poverty and nothing was really for certain. I grew up in Liverpool. I spent a lot of time in Bournemouth as well, down south. I had family in both areas. And I just remember everything being hard and scary. Scary in what way? Nothing was for certain. Um, your meals, your next meal wasn't for certain. Um, heating in the house wasn't for certain. People looking after me wasn't always for certain. Um, the only thing that was certain through the whole of my upbringing was love shown to me by my family. It was a long, hard road, I think, of a lot of growth through everyone in my family. I feel like everyone was learning on the day and I feel like everyone was trying to break their generational cases. So tell us about... About that, Molly, I mean, there's research on this done from like the university in Columbia in America that talk about the three big things that determine your life chances are in order, your parents, your postcode, and then your education. So tell us, as somebody that's broken that cycle mm-hmm. of growing up in poverty, where mm-hmm. your life was almost predetermined in many ways, yeah. the options available to you. Yeah, I feel like being from L11, from Norris Green or when I was in Bournemouth, a place called Boscombe, people in those areas don't really tend to make much about themselves, do you know what I mean? And I think it was more always myself, to be honest, that got me out of where I'm from. Obviously, there was tiny little bits of opportunities which helped, but I just remember being a kid and walking into various rooms and seeing various stuff going on and just remembering I'm better than that. Like what? Alcoholism drug addiction, just stuff that kids probably are never supposed to see. I probably think I've got one moment in my life where I've walked in to a front room and seen drug paraphernalia on the table. And I remember being about four or five and me heartbreaking because I just knew that wasn't supposed to be something that kids are supposed to walk in and see. 
And it broke my heart because I thought my mum's relapsed. And I knew how hard, I'm really sorry. It's fine. I knew how hard my mum was trying to be clean for me. And she was trying to change her life for me. So I can honestly say it was that moment where I knew I'm going to be bigger and better than this. I'm not going to repeat this. And I'm going to make a change. At five? Yeah, about four or five, honestly. If if you can ask anyone what was little Molly like at that age, they'll just tell you like a ball of energy. I'd always be quite scared and apprehensive first going into new situations because I really always had to scope them out. But when I got going, I just had this undying or belief in myself or blind faith that I could make it at something. And I just remember being in that moment thinking, I don't want to live like this or be like this. And I think in that moment, my mum knew also and she also changed her life and turned her life around, which was the biggest cornerstone for me and showed me the way and the strength and the resilience on how to to push through. But you know, like, on attachment theory, so that's mm-hmm. off the, it, it comes from the work of a guy called Dr. John Bowlby mm-hmm. that talks around up until the age of four or five, we look to our caregivers to, to, to almost give us a sense of what the world is like and yeah. what we can expect from it. So that sounds like you're in a chaotic, turbulent period of, uh, of, 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 of yeah, caregivers. So. Yeah. I'm interested, what's that taught you as an adult when you look back on it in terms of who you can rely on, how you establish a sense of calm and certainty in your world? It's still a struggle to this day, like, because there'll be bits of PTSD, lots of trauma. And I think if I had to, when I realise why things unravel for me now, um, well, over the last few years, it will always come down to the pathways when I was little. Well, it wasn't explained. This is how, when you're frustrated and when you're scared, this is how you you vent it and this is how you talk about it. Or it was quite tough, to be honest. My mum did always show me that there was always stability in the end. Do you know what I mean? And she was able to show me that mistakes can happen or life isn't always going to treat you easy and life's not always going to be okay, but you will find a way to make it through. So what triggers you now that you can identify was that the seeds of that were planted when you were just a young adolescent? I feel as if I've got older and realised I had a lot of abandonment stuff and a lot of just wanting to be loved and to be liked. I couldn't understand why why all that stuff was happening. Now, when, when I was 15, 16, me and my mum had lots of conversations, open and honest, and she explained lots of things and addictions and a, a disease. The, the the people in my life didn't choose to do this on purpose. It wasn't like, oh, hang on, let's just put Molly in these kinds of situations. Far from that, do you know what I mean? So it was a lot of understanding that why was I never enough? And to be honest, it has completely fueled me to be the person that I am. And to give me the drive and the resilience, like I say, when I'm in the cage, getting hit and outmaneuvered by a, a submission attempt or by a strike is nothing to the life that I've had to overcome and to beat. And this is such a common theme on high performance. And look, thank you for coming on and you know being so open and sharing that. You know, we have so many people that come on and talk about 
trauma leads to triumph. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a Dame Stephanie Shirley, who was an immigrant who came to the UK escaping Nazi persecution. And she said that it's in exactly the same way that you do. She said, once you've been an immigrant, once you've had a change of life and a change of parents and a change of country at five years old, with no control over anything, she said, you get this feeling of invincibility that you will then take risks. Yeah. You will then do things that no one else does. There's a reason why... of the biggest businesses in America are owned by first or second generation immigrants because they have this sense of you can't touch us. Absolutely. It's a hard thing, but for people who are currently going through trauma or are at a stage further back than you, what would you want to share with them about the story of this can feel like the most painful thing in the world and it absolutely is and needs to be dealt with, but then at the same time can become your superpower? Like, How do they get to where you are now, do you think? That's a, that's a really good question. Being able to speak to people, if you can speak to someone who you trust and they're able to to help guide you, then take it as early as you can. I feel like our generation, my generation now and the generation before me seek therapy and seek help where, I don't know, the generation before that, like my mum's generation, that may have been seen as a weakness and sometimes culturally where I'm from, it's the... The men and and the women are supposed are supposed to be strong. You're not supposed to moan. You're not supposed to speak about feeling feelings. But I feel like that's something that we have to overcome and be a bit more honest about. But I feel like when you forge them fire, then you are able to to overcome anything. And it is my biggest superpower. I think what I went through and what I do say because I know this will probably be quite triggering for my mum to hear and for other listeners and viewers to see it is my absolute superpower and I wouldn't change one day, I wouldn't change one footstep of my journey or of my mum's journey because we've had to own our stuff, mm. do you know what I mean? My shame isn't, isn't her shame and her shame isn't my shame. I said to my mum once and, and she said to me, she got quite upset because it obviously, like I say, it's triggering for her to hear because sometimes she sees it as her disadvantage and like she's let me down in certain ways, but I don't see it like that because I feel like she's made the strongest person that she could have ever made. But I said to her, our story may save other people's lives and yeah. that's why we need to talk about it Absolutely. because it is like I'll probably go home from this like probably quite drained and really open because I'm opening myself up to as an out to a broader audience you know what I mean no one knows the hardships I've had to overcome can I ask you about the importance of empathy as well mm-hmm. you know, we were joined on the show by Joe Wicks who shared with us that his dad was also an addict and exactly like you as a kid he used to think, am I not good enough to keep you away from the drugs? Like, yeah. am I not enough? And it's only now that he looks back and he realises, as you do as well, that it was an illness. This mm-hmm. isn't this isn't the something that you could have cured because the person was ill. Mm-hmm. And I think from the outside, people that have no experience of the world that you've had, they look at drug abusers and think, wasters, losers, junkies, all of that sort of stuff. What message would you want to give to people about the things that you saw so that we can have more empathy for people who are struggling like your mum was? I feel like growing up within the NA community, because obviously my mum's a part of Narcotics Anonymous, I was known as an NA baby. So when they had meetings and they went and and done the shares and worked the 12-step programme, I was there because we're talking about the 90s when people didn't have money for people to look after the kids. So I'd have to go and sometimes I'd have to listen and sometimes people were lovely enough to my mum to take me to the park for an hour so she could have her moments and she could work the programme. But 
I am. Um, we was always, always taught to not judge anyone else because you don't know what that person's been through. And I think that's really important that you don't pass judgment. And I remember I was in a music video with Joel Corey and Tom Grennan not so long ago called Lionheart. And it was in some way, I think it was like Berkshire or Shropshire or some shire, some shire, should I say, <laughs> some way posh. And I remember getting picked up in London. I got picked up in this big Mercedes car and I'm like, oh my God. And I'm on my way to Warner Brothers. And as we're driving through uh, this area, I remember ringing, I'm not sure if it was my fiance, Alison. I remember thinking, these people who live here probably really think that people who were on benefits and addicts and things really are just like, like, they're just making it up like it's not real. Like if, if people only think this is the real way of life, then they are obviously going to think that's not real. Do you know what I mean? Because they're so blindsided mm. to reality. They've never walked a day in the shoes of someone who has grew up to their parents being a sex worker and they've probably been orphaned or the parents died from a, an overdose and then they've had to bring themselves up and they've never been able to understand how to even enrol in school, enrol in college, get a job. Like, the system's not made for people to flourish, do you know what I mean? So we have to be really accepting and understanding to that and hold out all of branches and we have to, to give everyone a chance because where I'm from, you only need to give people a chance sometimes and, and that's all they want. They'll make it off their own back. They're not asking for money. They're not asking for you to do the work for them. They're just asking for an opportunity. I also think there's a, a whole conversation where the narrative needs to change around. If someone's got mental health problems, oh, they're weak, they've got a mental health issue. If someone takes drugs, oh, they're weak because they can't stay off the drugs. If someone's an alcoholic, oh, they're weak. They are the strongest people because they're still trying to be a parent, trying to be a friend, trying to live a life. You know, your mum would have had to show so much strength to try and go forward. I, I loved it what you said when almost like the biggest thing for you was her showing you in the end how much she loved you because she changed her whole life. Yeah, for my, you, could you tell yeah. us what she did? My mum's my my words. I got so emotional speaking about this because it means so so much to me. Do people. you think it's a good thing though? Like, if you can imagine seeing your parents, the the person who keeps you safe, your guardian, the person whose love means everything to you, yeah, on the knees struggling with this, I could just see how how much it was affecting her because. She's not just struggling with withdrawal symptoms and having to chase the next fix. She's struggling with the feeling of letting her child down, her blood, her flesh, the thing that she wants to to prosper and to flourish. So for me to see my mum get clean, she moved us to Bournemouth. She started a new life down there. She got clean on her own. So she's done it all by herself. Normally people have to go into rehabs, have to go into recovery, into dry houses and do all that. And to watch someone do that by themselves is extraordinary. She took herself back to college. So she got all of her, I'm not sure what qualifications she didn't have, but she got all the qualifications she did have. She had two jobs. She worked in a chip shop and she was chambermaiden. So she was uh, working in hotels, doing anything that she could. She would also volunteer at the non-profitable organisation she's a director of now called Street Scene and she do the night shifts so it's residential rehabilitation centres so she'd sleep overnight and just watch the clients and make sure that they wasn't doing anything that they shouldn't be doing so in this moment of me being 8, 9, 10 and 11 
and watching the person who I adore and I love the most absolutely change their life around. I see my mum get clean, get qualifications and then get a job as a counsellor. So she then started teaching people what not to do and um, like monkey see, monkey doesn't need to do. Do you know what I mean? And she's really flourished and she really flourished there. See, there's something really powerful about that because that's like a real life interpretation of there's a model from a guy called Kurt Lewin that talks about behavior is a function of both personality but also about our environment. And I wonder how much of your mum's addiction was stitched into the environment of growing up in L11, you know, Absolutely. and being around that and <laughs> the power of having the courage to step away from that environment suddenly shifts. Mm-hmm. The behaviour, you know, her personality, then she threw it into hard work and being the great mum that she evidently became. She said, yeah, she's done a good job leading in the end. It's funny, me and my mum have never had an argument where I've said to her, like, I hate you. And I've never once thrown in her face anything or any adversity that we've had to go through together because ultimately when the shit hits the fan... Sharon, it's my mum who's the one who leads everyone out of the flames, do you know what I mean? So I'm interested in, there's an awful lot of wisdom contained in any of these addiction therapies. You know, mm-hmm. we spoke to Matt Fraser, the five times world CrossFit mm-hmm. champion that quoted the serenity prayer yeah, before that's... he steps onto the mat. Mm-hmm. You know, the first step of recovery is knowing what you can control, mm-hmm. understanding what you can't and having the grace to, and the wisdom to know the difference. What did you learn like almost by osmosis of being yeah. part of those meetings that you think actually had a significant effect on your journey to where you are today? I've never been asked that. Also, I don't think I've ever been this honest, so I well, probably wouldn't have been asked this question, but I really learned that it's okay not to be okay. The rain always ends and the sunshine does come. Do you know what I mean? Like when you sit there and you listen to someone share, I remember coming to to CA Cocaine Anonymous. They had the first ever women's convention in London. And I think it was 2012 or 2013. And my mum said, do you want to come and support the people coming over to, to make their shares? And I was like, absolutely. And I remember even then still being... 20 and 21 still listening to these shares and taking so much from it but I just seen that there was a certain power in being vulnerable and these women like if I thought my life was fucked I'm sorry to swear but what they've managed to overcome I was like oh my god and I think it really gave me just always hope that you can always overcome and there's always a way and you just have to talk about it and work through it the greatest gift that I learned was being vulnerable because you become an oversharer because when you're sitting in a room, you're safe to to speak and to tell your truth. And I think that's what I learned. Vulnerability was my superpower as well. I've got a few, I think. <laughs> well, let's talk about the vulnerability superpower mm-hmm. because you, we can only have a conversation like this if we're totally honest and everything is mm-hmm. open for people, if you're happy to do that, yeah. which I think... That's is, what I'm here for, is, isn't it? Absolutely. So it's easy for people to go, oh, I see, struggles as a child, gets into sport, and then everything's fine. But <laughs> let's be totally honest, that that's not the way the world works. Absolutely not, no. Would you be happy to share with us, despite the fact that you know, you're know you now fighting on the world stage, mm-hmm. in the biggest arenas, mm-hmm. with some of the most famous knockouts in UFC history, whether there are still challenges, if they are, how do they manifest themselves, and how do you deal with them? Yeah, I feel like 
it's been a bit of a whirlwind because probably something that's attached itself to me since growing up would be I'm not enough. And then when you get to the world stage, I'm still not enough. I've got to the UFC and I'm still fighting my own battles and my own demons in my head thinking, like, should it be here? Like, I remember walking out at UFC Liverpool and I'm like, oh my God, first scouser to make the walk. And as I'm walking, I'm taking it all in. And I still don't even believe that I deserve to be there because why should someone from where I'm from be there when ultimately my record, my fighting style, my personality and how much I can sell a ticket and how much I can punch someone's head in. Yeah, I should be there. But I remember that was always, and it's only just fading that little bit of um, of self-doubt of should I be there but I suppose the imposter syndrome is obviously a big one that I don't think a lot of athletes are candid enough and brave enough to speak about but I feel like that's something that I will always probably struggle with just a little bit um, and I think that comes from people might not think that I'm very humble who don't know me on a one-to-one basis but I think when you are humble, sometimes you don't want to accept it all or don't think you deserve it all when you do. So I think that's something that will be ongoing for me to always have to deal with and just get to grips with because the worst thing I think I could be would be like a big head and have an overinflated ego and I'm very aware of myself and what I need and what I want and I don't want or I don't want to have to need the the affirmation of other people or for people to want to have pictures with me or for people to want to, oh, there's Meatball. I don't want that to become a part of myself. When you lose sight of what the goal is, the goal is to be successful, to be a world champion and to provide for myself and for the future um, coming through and provide that blueprint. I don't want to actually be that person that's quite narcissistic and requires that side of the fame and the glory. It's a difficult balance in that, isn't it? Because yeah, I'm spinning plates every day, to be fair. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, so I grew up in boxing and I always used to think that there's a sweet spot in your career that when you first start, you're humble, you're hardworking, you listen <laughs> to the right people around you. And then the more you progress and the more successful you are, the more your name and your, your fame mm -hmm attracts a gravitational pull to lots mm. of hangers on lots of people that wouldn't be associated with you people Absolutely. that wouldn't be patting you on the back and that's difficult not to be seduced by that if mm -hmm. you've never had it before you know you spoke about your attachment issues yeah. of wanting to be loved wanting yeah. to be recognized so you're getting it but not always from the healthiest from the right sources people, yeah there's that famous Angelo Dundee quote that look around your dressing room when you've got beat rather than when you've won to find out who really matters mm -hmm. How do you determine that without having to go through defeats or go through disappointments? I feel like there was a part of my career where I seen very much who was coming at me for the wrong reasons. It took me a couple of months of realising going out to party and, and that those people were for that and they wasn't there for the right reasons, do you know what I mean? But what I will say was the positive about having all of this is being involved in MMA, the UFC is 30 years old. We don't have the regulations and the procedures in place to guide you through these moments. We are at the mercy of the public and we have to drag ourselves up. And the one thing that I like about this whole process is it's taught me to be more 
of a role model. It like it's like I've grown up in front of the public, and I know that the celebrations after fights probably aren't that great. Do you know what I mean? But the working class people love it. To be fair, and everyone I grew up with loves it. But I don't know. I feel like it's brought a better Molly McCann and a more well-rounded Molly McCann and a more switched-on Molly McCann because being that kid who's had to grow up in the madness, I've adapted it like quick. The negative part was it's probably cost me relationships. It's probably cost me weeks and months of my own brain having to work out agendas. When I sit down in a room, what is your agenda? Your two agenda right now in this interview is to get the best interview out of me that you can. And I don't know if, say, if I broke down, they probably would be. But would they be after care when I leave? Do you know what I mean? Would you be looking after me? You're very firm and straight with your questions and you've got answers out of me which I've never given before. But I trust yous and I know that the podcast is for good and I am aware of who yous are, so that's why yous are getting it. But sometimes being in rooms with people I've never met before and they're coming at me with positive stuff like, oh, well, we'll offer you this and we'll offer you that. And sometimes I'm not doing my due diligence on who they are and what they're about and I've had to learn that kind of stuff. Yeah. Also. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned then? What my boundaries truly are. And this has happened, I'd literally say, in the last... I had a bit of a breakdown last year because it all got on top. It was like I was literally dropped in the ocean and it just engulfed me because the performances were going a certain way. The sponsors was coming in. People was seeing a normal person do well and everyone championed that. So it was really hard to not let people down. Do you know what I mean? So it was really hard to have to deal with that. How difficult was that? Because like, you know, Right at the very beginning, you decided at four years old, I'm not going to be like this. I'm going to forge my own path. And then we can talk in due course about the hurdles you had to overcome mm -hmm. just to be in the octagon. Be, yeah. Then it finally happens, the money, the fame, the recognition, the success, the belts, the oh, celebrations, yeah. right? And that, that you dreamt of all your life, mm -hmm. leads to a breakdown. Yeah. How hard is, is that to compute? Imagine everything that you've ever dreamed of kind of achieving it and then being the most unhappy in yourself that you've ever been you've spent your whole career and the whole best part of 15 16 years of my life trying to attain this I feel like from being a kid what was my goals my goals was to buy a house to get a degree to get engaged and get married to win a world title in Liverpool and to be in the UFC, do you know what I mean? So these are all my goals, so I'm gently ticking my way off. And then I get there, and I've never been more empty in my whole life than when I get there. Nothing had a feeling, nothing made me happy, because everything came to me in abundance. And even though, don't get me wrong, when I got a six-figure sponsorship deal, I was crying my eyes out, and when I was being presented with all these big, big moments in my life, for a second, I'd cry and be overwhelmed because why did I deserve this? I, it's obviously always going to keep coming back to, well, I don't deserve this, why have I got this, do you know what I mean? So my head's trying to add up all this stuff, but when it comes to you all at once, like I say, things just don't mean the same anymore. And I had to have big sit-downs. It's the first time I've had to ask for help, to be honest. I've always been able to manage to get through anything. 
I broke down. It's the first time I've had to ring my mum up and go, you're going to have to come to Liverpool. Um, I'm not in a good way. I'm not in a good place. And um, I remember we just had to sit down, like me, my mum and my fiancé. I was at this place where I was having thoughts and dreams. I remember having a dream a couple of times, back to back, and it was about how I was going to do myself in. So which vice would I take? How was it going to be? And I remember, we, and this is like after the second elbow. So this was after three big wins in the UFC. I'd won 50 grand bonuses after every one of them. I'd got all this sponsorship. I was in the best place in my life on paper. And I just was in a, in a state where I was shaking every day. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And I'm thinking, how am I going to end it all? I don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with this life that I've now attained. It took the breaking of me to obviously make me again. And I just remembered that my mum came and it was harder to see the effect that I was having on my fiancé. That was the hardest part because your partner's coming home every day to see you in the worst state ever and just not you, not the, the Molly that you was when you first met this person and... It was really hard just to see how it was affecting her and I felt even more guilty because of that. So um, my mum just came, sat me down and we just had to work through it and I just remember saying, after this next fight, if I feel like this still, I can't fight anymore because you've gone from being someone who's a people pleaser, who just wants to make people who come into your space feel better when they leave but if you imagine walking through my amazing city or walking through this country or walking through Ireland everyone who I meet I'm given a piece of my pie to at the end of the day I had got nothing left and I'm I'm just I was running off fumes for months and it just come on top in the end do you know what I mean and I remember I reached out to a guy called Martin Bone in the end who was a a wellness and a meditation coach and I just remember going to speak to him and I was like on my knees and I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. And I remember I sat down with him for about three hours on two different occasions and he just let me speak. He just let me page like I was just crying and it was uncontrollable. And he just said to me, like, your central nervous system is finished. He said, you've just been fight or flight for so long and you're trying to give everyone... You don't want to let anyone down and you just want to be the best person that you can be and you want to let everyone come on this journey with you, Molly, but that's not the case. Like, you're not going to be able to carry on doing this. And it took a lot. I got a fight to fight an MSG, the mecca of, of fighting, and I was like, right, I've got 12 weeks here to get myself right and I don't know how to say no. I only know how to overcome. And I mean, I've been in fight camps where my stepdad's like, got a terminal illness, I'm nursing him as well as training, as well as working full-time, as well as looking after my mum. Molly McCann knows how to overcome. I can do this. And I worked so hard every day meticulously. I gave me social media up, gave me passwords to my manager. I rang him up, actually, and I said, I'm not OK. He said, well, I'm here to lighten the loads. He said, you've never let me do this for you. Um, I do it for Paddy. I always have because he's just he's just let me from the beginning, but you've always had a tight hold on your career. Let me take the weight off. So he's like, I'm going to sort all your accounts. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the other. Give me your social media. You're not going back on that. And I felt free the moment that went by the way. I was like, woof. 
I remember that weekend, my mum minded the dogs, me and my Ellis, my fiancé, we went to the lakes and I went to this spa called Lador Falls and uh, Martin had given me all this homework to do and he's like, right, we're going to go back to basics and we're going to start you fresh on it. It just, honestly, it involved every day checking in, waking up, doing breath work, meditating, gratitude journal, write me goals, write me intentions, walk to the gym, put me music on, do what I was made to do, go and train, go and be the best version of myself, come home, meditate, do lots of savasana, try and calm myself and just slow life right down. And it was, I'd say, come the fight when it was three or four months and it was time to fight in New York in November, just gone. I was ready. I was the best me. I was bulletproof. I was in here. I was like ready to go. But um, honestly, it took me to go to hell and back and I didn't think that there was moments of getting through it, but I did. There's two things that jump out to me there in your answer, and thanks for being so candid. The first one is what I understand is the first step of going back to addiction therapy, which mm -hmm. is surrender. Yeah. Eventually we have to accept I'm powerless in the face of this, and mm -hmm. that sounds like what you did eventually. Mm -hmm. But then what really is fascinating is everything you described that you did next was all small, achievable, replicable steps, you know, get up in the morning, journal, mm -hmm. do some breath work, listen to music. There was nothing outside of your control that you could do. And it was like the cumulative scaffolding of those small steps that eventually took you to the successful outcome. Yeah, I think um, I had to get my foundations right again. It wasn't overnight and it kept on and it would creep back in and I had to not stuff it down. I had to like let it surface, breathe if it resonates in it and then you can go again. But my mum said something to Ellis one day and and she said, um, doesn't matter if Molly's on her knees, I've seen her worse than this and she will get through it. Don't worry, she will get through this. And my mum didn't baby me through it. Sharon Leonard didn't baby me through it. She allowed me the space to, I'm here, I'll stay here, I'm going to show you, look, just this, this, this and this. And she also mirrored what Martin was saying. She was also sceptical, like, I don't know if I trust this person, you're very vulnerable right now, we're not a vulnerable in a good way. She overseen it and she's like, yeah, that's okay. And she was like, right, I'm going to go now and you're going to overcome this and you're going to win. So, so your mum sounds like, she's almost like the perfect corner man. You know, like for a she, boxing or a fight. Do you know fight. when it's fight week and when I'm about to fight someone, she's not allowed to come anymore because her insecurities would surface and I could see oh, them right. like a tick, do you know what I mean? I'd be like, hey, I haven't got time for that <laughs> right now. So she gives me these little voice notes and these little messages and she has grown through what she has gone through and she has become the best person and the best teacher for me to learn from. And in these moments when I was really, really mentally unwell, I went to have some Reiki healing and the woman was speaking to me and she was like, do you know your mum? And I hadn't spoke about anything like this. She was like, your mother is your greatest teacher. Before she leaves this earth, you must take from her everything that you can. What's so, the greatest lesson she's taught you? She just said, I'm cut from her cloth. I'm cut from Sharon Leonard's cloth. And I can see how strong my mum's been and nothing has defeated my mum. And I think more has hit me mum than has maybe hit me. Do you know what I mean? But she's just shown me that she's the beacon of light and she's she's able to change her lives. She's changed and saved so many other people's lives that 
as long as I now follow the blueprints since recovery and post-recovery, I can do anything that I want to do. And I don't know, she's just made me since I was little mal. I was, she used to call me a cave baby because I was like undiagnosed with ADHD, just this mental loose cannon, do you know what I mean? And she'd like pull a hair out because imagine trying to control a child who's probably been through that much shit growing up. My mum didn't understand like what's wrong with Molly and it was all the hyper-focus, the, the hyperactivity. My mum just didn't know how to deal, but she did in the end and... I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of the woman that she's raised. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can we... Talk about the power of journaling. Absolutely, we can, because we can sell some of your journals. <laughs> well, I think that it's still something that, particularly here in the UK, we're a bit sniffy or a bit cynical about it. We can't really believe that, you know, fighting on the world stage, someone that does what you do, which is effectively, you know, punch someone in the head until they can't fight any longer, um, is what you do for a living. How on earth can writing down your feelings get you to be more elite in that sense? Would you be happy to share with us a few of the lines that you write regularly that have the biggest impact for you that I think will be really helpful for people to hear yeah. and why for you it does work? Yeah, so I'll say since I was five, six or seven, since my mum ever truly got clean, when we was, well, when I was young, we'd go on our knees next to the bed every night and we'd say our prayer, we'd say the serenity prayer and then she'd ask me three things that I'm grateful for. And then she'd say, what are your goals? So since I was this she big... She sounds like a great mum, by the way. But like, I know, but I mean, we're raw, or we yeah. were raw back then. This, like, I don't know, it was just like, it was just a feeling. It wasn't something that you wrote down. It wasn't something that you read. It's just what my mum felt, do you know what I mean? And she passed it on. And she used to tell me about short-term and long-term goals when I was this big. And my mum wasn't educated until she was in her 30s, I start mine with a mantra and because I'm ill and quite emotional I might forget it now but it normally starts with 
dear universe and God, I'm so thankful um, for. And then um, I go into what my actual mantra is. Sorry, that's the opening to it. And it goes, I'm too fast. I'm too strong. I'm too fucking good. I'm powerful beyond measure. I'm successful beyond belief. And anyone's life I touch, I change. So I tried to write a mantra that would mean me as a person. It puts me all together. So I have to tell myself before a fight, as I'm about to walk out, someone's trained every day of their life to come and put me away. And they're not going to, not today. So I'm too fast. I'm too strong. I am too fucking good. I am powerful and successful beyond measure. Do you know what I mean? I have to, I have to put the armor on on my head before I even get there. So the negative thoughts and the negative doubts every morning doesn't even come past this. And then I feel like it probably comes back to the abandonment stuff. But I never want people to feel like how I felt in certain circumstances when I grew up. So when one person comes into my path, if I can give them a compliment, if I can add to their day and they feel better after leaving me, then I will have changed their life just that little bit that day. Then after that, I used to write how the secret and how the power would have you write this. You'd write your, your goals and then your intentions, whereas I write a contract to myself. So every goal is mixed into an intention. Shout out to Tom Smith, someone who helped me write it this way. So he said, you've got to write it like a, a movie scene, like a script. For six months, I wrote the same five goals every day and they've all come true exactly how I wrote them. What were they? I was going to win a fight against Kim and I was going to get a 50 grand bonus. I was going to get a six-figure deal sponsorship. I was going to gain a punditry job I remember um, for argument's sake one was on September 4th you're going to walk out in in Las Vegas and you're going to steal the show you're going to completely obliterate your opponent to the to the point where she doesn't want to hit back you're going to have everyone in the arena screaming your name Dana White's going to absolutely fall in love with you. You will gain a new four-fight contract and you'll gain fight to the night bonus. Thank you, universe. It's already done. And I put the date in which that the, the goal should be completed by and then I put a tick next to it. So every day I sign my name and put a tick against it so that I hold myself accountable to those goals and dreams because if you don't hold yourself accountable to your vision, then it's easy to just steer off course. Now, I can already hear gestalt therapists around the country listening to <laughs> what you've just described and sort of sitting up and going, what a brilliant example of mm -hmm. gestalt therapy often says that our inner world has to correlate with our outer world. So, like, in a really silly way, if you, you know, if you see a crooked picture frame and you're somebody that likes order, you have to balance mm -hmm. it regardless of the discomfort it causes. It's too uncomfortable not to do it. And I'm interested in terms of how does that make you feel writing down such really quite vivid technical goals like that, that you go and do tick every day and mm -hmm. that contract with yourself is really powerful. Tell yeah. us what that does in terms of changing your everyday habits, your everyday behaviours. I feel like someone who has ADHD, that you require routine and you work best from routine. And I feel like from being a young child to being an adult, if I'm feeling a bit off key or uncensored or not happy, it's because I'm not following the routine and the things that make me happy. So when I wake up, 
you've got to understand training five Olympic disciplines or four Olympic disciplines every day with males, not with females, and living the life. I mean, I lived the life. I wasn't gifted with the the best physique or the best somatotype and frame to be doing what I'm doing. So a large proportion of my success relies on resilience and heart and just I have to beat you, (laughs) do you know what I mean? So to make sure that I'm always accountable to myself and to my goals makes me feel better. When I write that, when I hit camp, I'm a completely different person in here straight away. Like I am happy when I am not living in abundance and I don't know why, do you know what I mean? I don't know if it's from being younger, feeling love for the first time and safe for the first time. I'm not sure if it's because we didn't have anything and I was, I'm was i feeling like that again or if to be the best version of myself and to have the best performance of my life, I feel that you must always be feeling in the negative, in the deficit and you shouldn't always be feeling great because that's what fighting is. But I know when I write those things down, that by the time I get to the gym, my mind's geared, my mind's warmed up. So when you get into our gym and I'm about to hit pads, it's completely strategic. It's movement patterns. I've got to follow that pattern for this fight to probably work. I need to know in my mind I am the best in the world. And sometimes if I'm not, I have to fake it till I make it. So that's a real big reason why I think it's important for me to do that and even if I take it back to the previous question you said, why was I feeling better than myself when I was at my lowest? It's because I am doing the little things right. I'm consistently adding up them 1% every day and I'm controlling my controllables. When I can't control the external factors, what people think of me, what people write about me, what people say about me or what my opponent's doing, that's none of my business. I can't control that. I spend too much time thinking, oh, what if my opponent's doing that? Oh, she's training that way. Oh, she's from Brazil. Oh, I'm only from Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Like, a load of, like, BS. That doesn't matter. As long as I do what I'm supposed to do, I will be the best me and the best Molly McCann beats anyone on any given day. So people who are struggling with that bit of self-doubt and you've mm-hmm. said, you know, you have imposter syndrome as you're walking out to fight someone or as you're preparing mm-hmm. to fight someone, people who have these doubts, what you're saying is the process sort of kills the doubt. It's like that might be there, but mm-hmm. my hard work, my work ethic, my attention to detail, my non-negotiables, my 1%, mm-hmm. that's sort of the fire is extinguished by that. Is, that. is that what you're saying? I love that analogy, Jake. I absolutely believe what you're, right, what you're saying is right there. I think when you leave no stone unturned... No matter how a fight for me goes, I'll leave with my head up. The last fight that I completely got my ass handed to me, the girl got her game plan off before I did. And in my game, that's how it goes. If you get your game plan off first, you win. If you don't, you lose. The second that fight was over, congratulated her because I did never think she was going to do that to me. I left with my head held high and I went and met everyone else in the pub as I do, I met everyone in the Irish bar, Jack Doyle's, and I sat there and I could sit with myself. Now I've lost before. I've I've lost one other time on my UFC debut. I could not sit with myself. I'd never felt anything like that before, but I knew I had given everything. I had paid for 
every single thing I could in terms of recovery to get my body right. I hadn't even had a cookie in camp. I hadn't come off the diet at all. I had gone 15 weeks without an alcoholic beverage. I hadn't even gone to watch Everton Football Club play. Do you know what I mean? Which is like the harshest reality of life right now for <laughs> anyone in Liverpool. I'd done everything right. And in the moments, even your, in your biggest defeats, I walked in, I could walk with my head held high. Don't get me wrong, I grieved like it was no one's business. And I had to still sit and think, is this for me? Should, should I be doing this? But I think if you're not sad and if you're not feeling like that and if you're not heartbroken after losing, you shouldn't be in the game. Do you know what I mean? What's your process for being a better fighter? After a defeat? I've learnt more from a win sometimes than I have from a loss. And I think sometimes in a loss, you become so self-critical, I think, and that's a really important thing. Like, what are you learning from this moment? And what I learned, especially in the last fight, is hard work and application of, like, goodwill and, and giving your best self to everything still doesn't mean you're going to win. Like a win isn't a right, do you know what I mean? It's a privilege and sometimes you're just privileged to get that win on the day. And I feel like in that last loss, because I'd applied myself so well, I didn't have to reassess anything really, do you know what I mean? Because I'd done everything to the best of my ability and I don't have to think. Do you know how many people said to me, well, you need to change gyms? No, I do not need to change them. See, that, I was going to ask you on that because, again, this used to frustrate me when I was growing up and you'd see fighters and they'd take the shortcuts, right, and then they'd get beat and rather than do that self-analysis of go, I took a shortcut there and that's why I got beat, they'd go, yeah. oh, it's the coach's fault, it's the gym's fault. It's And it was easier to point the finger at others than do that self-analysis and be honest with themselves. Yeah. And, so what advice would you give to anyone that knows that they're making excuses or but doesn't want to look in the mirror and do that reflection that you've just described? I feel like having an honest team around you. Um, when I've lost in certain ways, my coaches have said, that's my fault, I should have done that. Or I should have done this or I should have done that. And they grieve the loss with me like they grieve it with me. And I've said, the loss is my fault. I'm the person in the cage and I made the decision that ultimately cost me the fight. You, If we've game plans incorrectly, it's up to me to be able to think on the spot and change the game plan. So I learned that and I think I held them accountable to to themselves where, no, actually, you don't have to make me feel better about myself. It was my shit. I done it wrong. I feel like to those who know that they're dancing with the devil a little bit, keep the right people around you who aren't yes men. If you look at me and Paddy Pimbley, we have the same people in our corner who have always been there because they're the ones who have sat me down. In camps when I believe I'm given everything, and I mean everything, I have my coach sit me down, maybe three camps ago and literally say I had just had my ass handed to me in a fight simulation with a lad who fights 10 pounds heavier than me he's probably one of the best in Europe and he, he's gone that's not good enough is it Molly I went are you messing with him are you joking like I'm crying like I'm trying everything he went you know you know and I went home fuming with him, Paul Rimmer, fuming with him because I know he knows I don't take shortcuts. I've never done yeah, it, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I went home and I went, I went in my head. I went, I'll fucking show you. So I went home and I fucking showed him. And then that was obviously the fight in um, 
had a, a big free fight win streak and that was the first win. So I had to fight against the girl called Kim who had 10 inches reach on me. And I suppose that was probably the little golden nugget and pale of wisdom of that camp that may have changed everything. But if you don't have these people keeping it honest, friggin' I'll have my fiancé every day who puts it on my toes, do you know what I mean? I have friends and family who I am the bottom of the list when it turns that I get annihilated and ripped to death at any family function, any event. I try to be the big mouth and the joker, but I am the joke, do you know what I mean? Everyone just keeps me, keeps it real. When you... Uh... When you swear, every time you swear, you look across. Are you, is Ellis not a fan of swearing? It was it, well, she just told me the real one to come on this podcast, don't swear, but I actually get it. <laughs> I get it. a lot of messages saying, we, Fuck we, it, you'll be all right. <laughs> thanks, lad. Um, yeah, will you stop saying lads and will you stop swearing? But I don't know, nervous disposition, I think. You, are you happy to talk about her? I mean, she is Absolutely. listening. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Ellis. <laughs> I'm interested to know what freedom it gave you when you finally came out. Because I think that, you know, I, I work a lot in football mm-hmm. and we all know there will be very well-known, world-class gay footballers mm-hmm. who just can't enjoy the freedom of life that you can now enjoy. Yeah. Would you mind taking us through the journey of how hard it is for an elite athlete who is in the public eye, even in the modern world in which we live, to, to come out? Yeah. Do you know what's the maddest one? I ran away from it my whole life and... Um, just because of culturally it wasn't cool, you know. I've really educated myself over the last few years and everyone around me in terminology and vocabulary and I will 100% admit when I was younger, I would have gone, oh, that's proper gay, that. That would mean that something was negative. I was brought up and that was the language I was brought Mm. up on and it's only as I've got older and grew through this moment and this process that I realised like we need a lot of education about how we speak and the language we use because that's what kept me a prisoner, that's what kept me hidden. Imagine living behind the mask of everything that happened to me as a kid and having to, to hide that trauma, you're then also hiding this and MMA saved my life in many different ways. It's also absolutely nearly killed me as well, but it provided me the space. I always say MMA and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu culture and the MMA culture of like, everything's cool, everything's okay. You are accepted. Ethnicity, religion and sexuality doesn't matter. Once you cross that mat, you handshake and you go and it's cool, do you know what I mean? So that provided me the space. I don't feel as if any relationship I've ever been in other than the one I'm in now has provided me freedom to be free in the relationship and in my career. I feel like every relationship I have been in, I would say that person would have always been the A-side in terms of notoriety or where they was in their career because they would always have been athletes. And then this is the first time I've met someone and upon the first time that we met, she's had like 30 questions written out on her phone of all different questions, some stuff I've like never what? been asked. I can't even remember. I'm going to have to see if she, she'll still have them on her phone, but just things like, how does training impact your life? Um, right. She was This is like, the first time 
Ellis clearly had big plans for you two staying together. I know. Well, when we when we what met, are your thoughts on marriage? What are your yeah. thoughts on children? How <laughs> no, old you want to be when me. you retire? That's a bit great that was to ask those questions. No, yeah. no. But the thing was, she'd never met anyone in my world. She comes from football. Was this your first same-sex relationship as no, well? No, no. I'd no, had a right. couple. I'd okay. had a couple before Ellis. Um, sorry, Ellis. But um, I think, like, when you're talking about coming out, there's a level of coming out to your friends and your family. Okay. Like, I couldn't even do it. I was that nervous. I said, Mum, you've got to ring everyone and tell everyone because wow. I felt a deep-rooted negative attachment to my sexuality. Growing up how I did, and it's not by the people around me, it's by the culture that we grew up in as, as a nation, I believe, not just as my family. Dirty. Like, it, it was bad news. Like, you just, ugh. oh, they're gay. Oh, look, two men kissing. What? Yeah. Oh my God, look at them women holding hands. Like, that's the stuff you're subject to growing up. And it's also the stuff that people don't understand the impact that has on someone oh, who absolutely. is unable to come out. I mean, you know, there was a famous professional footballer who came out and said, the reason it? why I was unable to do it was because of the throwaway remarks in the dressing room using language about gay or queer as a negative yeah. that meant he. He felt he could never tell the other players that he was gay. I, I think people don't see it. And it's, it's important we have this conversation. That yeah. These words well, impact a, people. Did you see that documentary about George Michael and being outed by the media? In, yeah. And this was 98, so you'd have been yeah. eight years of age. And it was like the shame, being gay was... The word yeah, shame they, was often attached to it. They had a it. rough narrative with him as well. They was just trying to expose him, expose him, expose him. And what people don't understand is gay persons shouldn't feel the need to come out, yet they still do. And that process is probably the hardest, most nerve-wracking thing because sure. if you receive it in a negative light, that stays with you then forever. Do you know what I mean? But like I say, there's a level of coming out. Like Ellis was out, but then obviously when she got with me, it's like nationwide out. It's yeah, like like we got engaged on New Year and half an hour after putting the post online, it's in the Daily Echo in Liverpool. It's all over the MMA publications, media publications. And I sat there and she sat there. And this is probably a bit of the negative stigma that we've had to face over like, over the years growing up. We both sat there and should have been absolutely balling, loving life, which we was, but we sat there. And I remember going like that. And I was like, oh, I'm just not ready for the negative that's about to come because I probably struggle more I went through a big period of being absolutely fine with being gay. And now I think if I have to speak about it sometimes because I'm a lot more well-known, it gets, pardon me, it gets scary because you think, mm. oh, I've got to deal with, like, some idiot from the arse end of nowhere wanting to give me the interpretation of the Bible or the Quran, and they're going to throw all this <laughs> stuff at me and I'm just not here for it today. Do you know what I mean? I'm not here for it. So but- what age were you when you did come out to you when I, when I physically my mum came out for me <laughs> I was yeah. 25 well, what age do you think you knew what your sexuality was 25 I ran from it like right. I had experiences at university with a girl I was like oh um, I know this is not for me and um, and it wasn't I, I just wasn't comfortable in myself I had so much shit going on that I just weren't cool, do you know what I mean? So I remember about two years ago, I think, I'd done my first come-out piece for, like, Joe, Disney+. Plus. 
um, all these, and like I had to come to London and near from the UFC picked me up and I remember I was dropped off at the train station, I was getting picked up at a car and I remember I had to go and drink, I mean I didn't have to, I chose to go and drink two pints of Guinness because I was like this because telling you the truth and being vulnerable is so scary, do you know what I mean? But being gay is a great thing and like our community is like a wonderful thing and for my birthday this year me and Ellis went to the Stonewall Inn which is like by chance it was to be honest but there was a cabaret show on and we was in New York to watch Katie Taylor fight and we went and watched this cabaret show and it's like how amazing is this like we are where the riots started where the gay riots started this is where gay pride started and we got to educate ourselves on our history which was cool Hello. Oh, here's the oh, phone. Here's the okay, pass them to Jake then. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Come on then, give us a few. Oh which God. which one sort of leaps out? Or which two or three leap out? Is it genetically difficult for you to have a six pack or easy? <laughs> Is that the first one? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Jay, what would you say? <laughs> genetically <laughs> difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's because of my Irish heritage. We don't really have six Is that because packs? she's a big fan of six packs? Oh, that... yeah. Um, <laughs> if someone said, what was your job? What would you say? And a lot, of, a lot of the time, if someone doesn't know who I am, I just say a personal trainer because it opens up the whole, oh, women in sport. So yeah. if I haven't got it in me to fight that day, <laughs> then I don't. What are the flaws in the UFC? What one thing would you change about your journey? Do sport and politics go hand in hand? This is before she even knew I was into politics. And you're saying her mum's nosy. This is like a question to me. Ellis, do you want to come and host the podcast? <laughs> oh my God, are you ready for this one? Go on. <laughs> do you get attached quickly I'd only met the game for, do you know what I went to an Everton football game and um, I took one of my lad a little lad from the gym to his first game and I sat next to her and um, that's how we met it was like by accident oh, no. by fate right. to be fair yeah and what was your answer to that one do you get attached quickly when I met it like fame just kicked in for me do you know what I mean yeah. and I couldn't believe everyone wanted to be my friends and I couldn't believe I'd walk into every single, like I'd walk down roads in Liverpool, bars was open for me, ale would be thrust at me, I was the queen of the city yep. and I just couldn't believe it and I was like, oh my God, and it made me feel elated, it, like absolutely amazing, do you know what I mean? But, You're the girl from Norris Green that was yeah. looking for a place. I was one of them, do you know what I mean? And I've made it and not much has changed in the city, by the way. Um I feel like, well, anyone who needs a voice, I, I am kind of the voice for them sometimes and I'm just, they, they, they love me. But how do you say no these days? Okay, so my biggest lesson that I learned last year was no. It's painful to say no. So I have to understand the people who are costing me my inner peace are people running after, running after me, chasing me to sign merchandise for pictures when I have to weigh this option up and I have to do it on the spot. Is this person asking for a picture for Instagram and for their own validation for their self-worth or does this person really like Molly McCann? And I have to decide in that moment which one they are and if it's this one, sorry, I haven't got time have a good day and if it's this one then it really hurts to say no if I haven't got time or if I'm not in the mental capacity to hold that space for that person because I don't want someone to meet me and have a rubbish experience I've met my I've met my idol before and that they was everything I ever imagined them to be who was that? Katie Taylor and I was blown away by that moment and also even in terms of career path, like I'm involved in 
coaching the national team for the uh, amateur amateur squad and for weapons down gloves up I'm on the board of directors and I've had to sit them down two weeks ago and say I'm just going to just put my gloves up for a little bit on these because what's really important for me is I've given you everything that I can right now and I'm going to go into camp and I'm going to go and be the best Molly McCann that I can be and if I can't be the best Molly McCann that I can be then I don't bear any weight in these organisations then I can't keep hitting the people I need to hit and knocking on doors and breaking the doors down that I need to so I'm going to have to step away for a bit and I mean I cried my eyes out on that phone call and the people like well we'll see you in a few months but I might not be back now because I don't know if I can sustain being the athlete I'm trying to do it all socialist activist um, coach like like leader of like my community and raise the bar and raise the standards and I'm trying to do all of that whilst still trying to understand Molly McCann understand this and be the meatball do you know what I mean it's like a lot of stuff that I'm I'm learning to juggle but I don't know Ellis said to me I'm, I'm getting really good at my boundaries now and just understanding the biggest thing I've learned from my breakdowns someone said to me it's not actually a breakdown it's like a rebirth right do you know what I mean so it's like a break up <laughs> yeah it's like yeah you're finding yourself again because if you don't stop the universe and the body will make you stop and it will bring you to your knees make you surrender you can shed all of that stuff work through the stuff and then go again so what I've realised is I must when I feel like I'm becoming erratic when I'm not happy the moments when waking up on a Monday morning my best moment of the week would be a Sunday morning walk along the dock with Ellis and the dogs or be a Monday going to the gym because I've had two days off and I can't wait to get back in there. If those two moments aren't making me happy, I need to reassess. I've got too much going on and I just need to stop and slow down. You know what? There's real parallels there when we sat down with Tyson Fury mm-hmm. and some of your story um, resonates on in terms of what he told us around this idea of not being able to escape the mask of, who, of the Gypsy King versus being the dad and the husband that he really is. And he told us, didn't he, that going to the tip is what grounds him after a big fight. You <laughs> yeah. might have boxed at Wembley, you've had mm-hmm. 80,000 people cheering you on the Saturday night, Monday morning, he said, I'm, you'll find me at the dump mm-hmm. taking stuff and yeah. doing things like that because that's exactly what brings him back down to to earth and yeah. the person that he, that he should be. Yeah. I feel like it's not real life. Like, I don't understand why people go off their heads when they they meet me sometimes and I'm like, I only fight, like I I get paid to literally have a fight. Like people go to prison for that when they don't get paid on a weekend outside (laughs) the pub, do you know what I mean? But yeah, it it blows my mind. But I feel like the fundamentals of Molly McCann is what I wanted as a child. Now I'm in the position to buy them and, and achieve them. That is all I want and that is my happiness. And I'm really thankful that I've made a full circle and I found me like is it called Yugi or whatever it's called but like I found my essence I understand really what makes me tick and what makes me work and it's been really hard the meatball is the person that you see at the weigh-ins feeds from the crowd fights for the crowd fights for the person fights for the underdog fights for everyone who's not got it easy and needs something to cheer for and needs some excitement and needs someone to know that they're fighting for them and then I really like doing stuff like this because this is Molly McCann and there is people will never know the layers to me and I feel 
I'm very much naked in terms of how open I am to use right now, but not everyone deserves this level of Molly McCann. And I think Ellis has really taught me that, like, there's layers to how much I can give mm. to someone. And most people now only deserve, like, the elbow, we'll call it, like, get back, you can stay there. <laughs> Are you good with your elbow? We've seen that. Yeah, <laughs> this one especially, but some people, there's a few people come here, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Well, look, thank can you. I just say thank you very much no problem, for boys. sharing it with us. Um, we've got some quick-fire questions for you, as we always do. Before mm. we get there, my final question is how you feel about being this vulnerable while still competing. You know, we get a lot of athletes that come to us after the careers were over and go, yeah, now I can tell you the truth. Yeah. How does this work for you? Because you're going to be back in the ring before too long, probably. Mm-hmm. And no doubt your opponent may well listen to this. So it, it's an interesting dynamic, that, isn't it? I suppose weakness is in the eye of the beholder. The most bravest thing is to tell your truth and be your true, authentic self. And I've put this out there quite a lot of the time. I, I, ten years ago, last month, I walked into an MMA gym and I kind of said to, to the people, like, I will always be unapologetically me. And that gets me the most hate in the world. But I'm not asked because I am happy and I'm being my true, honest self. And if people think that that's a negative and if people think that that's wrong, then they're still very archaic and they need to move with the times. And if we're trying to break stigma and if we're trying to make people feel better within themselves for being honest about their truth, then I need to be someone who... I take the hit a lot. My energy levels, my self-esteem and my being takes the hit and takes a bather and do and stuff like this. Like, this will absolutely do me in for a day or two. Like, I'll go home and I'll feel low because I've really opened myself up to use. And probably on the train, I'll be thinking, oh, my God, how many people are going to listen to that and all that? But then ultimately, it's irrelevant because if I'm here to be a trailblazer, to elevate the sport and to be a bit more mainstream and show MMA fighters and UFC fighters for what we really really are. We're real people who probably go through the worst, hardest times and are just trying to share those moments with you. So just be true to you. You're in the most brutal of sports. Mm-hmm. When will you know it's the time to get out and go and pursue a different path? The second, if I can't win a belt, like the only people who have beat me in this sport have fought for the world title or are just about to fight for the world title. So I am there and there about... I've got about six fights left in the UFC. If I touch the belt, then once I've won it, it'll be going, oh, that's me done. Thank you very much. And if I don't think I'm going to touch the belt, that is me done. Thank you very much. And my last goal as in an athletic career is to win a belt in boxing and is to retire in the MS Bank in Liverpool. Same place I won my MMA world title, it'll be the same place I win my boxing world title. So when that's done, I give myself a couple of fights in the in the ring and then I'll be done but I need to pop some kids out and enjoy that part of life for amazing manifest that oh don't worry it's in the journal it'll be journaled right final thing quick five questions the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you need to buy into ideally to know yes men to only the truth to a positive work environment and a positive attitude always and and never give up mentality if it doesn't compromise your mental health. What's your greatest strength and your biggest weakness? I've never met someone more resilient than me in my life, maybe other than my mum. Um, my biggest weakness, just wanting to be loved, I suppose. There was a time when 
I'd accept any form of love, even if it was rejection and hate. And I'm now learning that. Well, I'm not a seat at the table. I'm the fucking table. Do you know what I mean? So I'm I'm, get, I'm getting there, but I think that's still probably my weakness. Yeah. With that in mind, actually, what would you say to a young Molly McCann if you had the chance to pass on a piece of wisdom to her that you've picked up? People's opinions of you is none of your business. And don't feel like your truth needs to be heard by everyone else. Your truth only needs to be heard by you. How important is legacy to you? It wasn't a thing, but I feel as if when someone becomes older, I never sit and smell the roses, but as I've got older and I look back at what I've done, it's one hell of a ride. And I think that my legacy, if I retired now, is so much more than what, 99% of the population could ever achieve so I'm all good with that but it is important for me to make sure that I keep on breaking doors in and the legacy keeps getting bigger and better so that others the road isn't as bumpy for everyone else to try and get get through and your one golden rule for living a high performance life your final message for people who've listened to this conversation show up every day that's all that's asked just show up you've been brilliant Cheers, definitely on it. Thank you. Damien. Jake. You know, that is such an interesting conversation. And it's a hard one to, to, as parents, it's a hard one to work out how to parent your children because, you know, we try and give our children everything, right? So how, how do we know whether actually giving them so much is what extinguishes the flame for the rest of their life or whether Molly would have been the kind of person that, does what she does regardless of her upbringing you know you assume it's the way she was brought up but we don't know because we don't know what a different upbringing would have done for her it it leaves me with more questions than answers about how we can equip our children for the future because everything we're told is look after them and they'll be okay give them trauma and they won't be whereas molly was subjected to incredible traumas and look at the amazing person she is yeah it's a great it's a great debate, the nature-nurture debate. I don't think it'll ever be settled in our lifetime of how much of our behaviour is genetically encoded and how much of it we learn through being a product of our environment. But I think what nobody argues is that both of them are significant, whatever the weighting is. But I was reminded, you quoted Joe Wicks and the interview we did with him, and Joe gave us that great line that the antidote to addiction is connection. We're often inclined to push people away when they don't fit our view of the world, whereas actually bringing them closer and making them feel loved, feel seen, feel heard is important. And I think that's the thing that I took from Molly's discussion, the idea that her mum somehow still saw her even through that haze of addiction and they created that connection that has allowed her to go and flourish and make sense of some of those traumas. And I would use this interview to remind people that powerful is vulnerable. I still believe a huge amount of people think if they restrict themselves, control themselves, put a moat around themselves, wear a mask all the time, tell the world everything's fine, then they're powerful. Mm -hmm. She is completely vulnerable. She's completely exposed. I feel like she gave us absolutely everything. She left nothing hidden away. And that is true power. And clearly a lot of work has been done by her, internal work, to be able to get to that point. Yeah, I think... There's a pattern there, isn't it? We've seen it with Johnny Wilkinson. We've seen it with Tyson Fury. We've seen it with Molly. That that moment of just surrendering 
and making yourself vulnerable, accepting that you're not ironclad, you're not uh, invulnerable to the bullets of life that it throws at us. And sometimes just making ourselves open and vulnerable is, is a superpower in its own right. And I think when we hear people like that, that we might look from the outside and assume that they've got it all, they're telling us that actually this is this is the key to having even more. And we've spoken to lots of elite athletes where I fear for their future. I actually think she's going to be in a really good place. Oh yeah, definitely. I think I think her legacy of she, she used that same kicking doors down, making the world a better place, moving the path for the next generation is going to be something that she's going to keep going and doing, whether that's in the octagon or whether it's out there in political fields i loved it thanks mate thanks mate privilege well this is going to be interesting because we're now joined by a listener to the high performance podcast from toronto canada a very warm welcome to daniel church hi daniel hi there jake damien thanks for having me thank you very much for coming on the show um Listen, you reached out to us through Instagram to talk about the impact that high performance has had on you. Um, and I get the impression that maybe, you know, you're not traditionally a big podcast listener before you stumbled across our podcast. No, not at all. Uh, uh, my coaching counterpart on the men's hockey team forwarded me, uh, like you ask your listeners to do, one of the podcasts. And I really didn't listen to podcasts previously. And I just loved it and uh, got into it and then listened to it in the car, listened to it when I'm on a run and uh, just got totally immersed into the many great guests that you've had and, and the lessons that they teach. Oh, well, thank you for allowing us to accompany you, Dan. Um, what's been the one episode then that stands out for you that you can think of? I'm sure like many of your uh, listeners, there's not one episode. I think it's a, a collective of a bunch and I have a whole list here in front of me. Um, I think, you know, with my team, I coached the women's ice hockey team at York University We've used a couple of the different ones and two that really stood out for us uh, as female athletes was Angela Ruggiero um, because it's a directly applicable university hockey player uh, and the lessons that she had. And then the other one that uh, we used a lot uh, or clips of was uh, Alex Scott, specifically about what it was to be a good teammate and to help be, uh, help each other achieve excellence. Some of the other ones I've loved is Total Wolf and um, Gareth Southgate as a coach, I think, you know, but there's so many great guests. And I think some of the ones that aren't sports related are the ones that connect with me uh, the most as well. So Owen O'Kane, I thought was phenomenal. So you're now a coach of the women's hockey team. So tell us about some of the non-negotiable behaviours that you get some of your athletes to buy into. Yeah, I think, you know, we use, uh, there's, there's a great book called Legacy about you know, New Zealand All Blacks culture and Dan Carter, uh, you had on. I love that one too. Um, but the the Maori people have this word called Fano, it's pronounced. We call it Wanu. That's how it's spelled, which means family. And so I think a lot of the things that uh we try to do is all about how you would have a family setting. So respect for each other, uh, loyalty. And it's not just to your immediate family, but to your extended family, your ancestry, your community and uh, what it means to be a good representative of your community. So I think when it comes to non-negotiables, it's about, you know, passion and work ethic, but also connection and treating people the way you want to be treated. And I just want to touch on the, the mental health element. I mean, you, you told us on the message that you sent us, and I hope you don't mind me sharing it with the, yeah, the people who are, who are listening to this, that, you know, you've had 
challenges in your own personal life with your three bouts of depression, you know, when you, when you lost your father, but also a period where you were no longer in charge of the Canadian Olympic hockey team just two months before the Olympics in Sochi. Has our podcast helped you to have those kinds of conversations in the elite sporting environment? Because one thing that we are really keen on is, is trying to help have that impact in the sporting world. Yeah, definitely. And for me, um, talking about that openly with my uh, athletes has been, I think, a huge thing because then they know that they at least have someone who's an advocate that they could come to if they were struggling with something. Uh, it opens a door. Uh, and so I've been quite open about my uh, challenges with depression. And I think, you know, even though I've had three acute bouts with uh, clinical depression, it doesn't mean that like I'm always happy. Uh, or I'm always down, you know, there's this kind of wave that you go through. And so there's times like right now in the wintertime, it's really hard for me. Uh, the lack of daylight really affects me. Uh, so it's something that I know, like getting out and going for a run or for a walk makes a huge difference. But I think being open to the conversation and that, you know, mental health, it's illness that you would treat, you would treat any other illness with medication. And so talking to people or medication or whatever the case may be is just part of the treatment of it, as opposed to this, this perceived weakness that some people may, may believe that it is. So I think talking about it is, is hugely important. You remind me, Daniel, of so many of our guests who've come on the High Performance Podcast and shared their their lessons, really, that they're lifelong learners. You know, I think sometimes we get to 25 and think we've got the world figured out. And then we just get these kind of unexpected sideswipes and these, you know, not knockout blows, but certainly knock you to your knees blows. And I think it's being a lifelong learner that helps us all stand up, go again. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, the High Performance Podcast is part of your of your learning process. So the support you know, from elite people like you to us is really humbling for us. Well, thanks for everything that you do. And, and I gain so much inspiration listening to the podcast uh, week in and week out and keep doing all the great things. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. So there we go. That's today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. Thank you as always for the incredible messages that you've been sending into us. They honestly are, they are the energy behind the High Performance team. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, please just reach out um, via YouTube or Instagram or Twitter, wherever you can get in touch with us and the team. I'd like to also thank today's guest who you heard, Molly McCann. Molly, thank you so much to come on a podcast like this and talk in the way you did with honesty and vulnerability and openness, but also to be incredibly inspirational at the same time is a rare mix. And I really, really appreciate you opening up to high performance. Don't forget, guys, if you want more from us, you can watch the episodes as well as listen to them on YouTube. You can also subscribe to our High Performance Plus service and get even more details in the description to this podcast. And we're on tour as well. So check out our website at thehighperformancepodcast.com. But you know what? The biggest and the simplest and the easiest thing you can do is just share this podcast. It's so, so simple. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you very soon on High Performance. 